Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey, Candice. Jane, we have alluded to revisionist history before when we talked about Rosie the Riveter and um, did the Chinese beat Columbus to America, the idea being that as new evidence is found and new facts are revealed or we start to look at history in a different way, mm-hmm. we can see that it is an evolving thing. Yeah, and it's always a very popular subject to talk about anything relating to revisionist history. And I find it really interesting just because it touches on the idea of the history of history itself, basically how we view history. And, uh, because it's, it's always important to go over your own assumptions and like make sure like what you believe isn't based on something not right. Exactly. And that's what makes revisionist history so controversial. And it's not always controversial. Sometimes it's as simple as, as fixing a date in a history textbook. Right. But back in 1931, the American Historical Association president, Carl Becker, made this sort of landmark speech in which he clarified that history wasn't a static list of, of dates and mm-hmm. names and, you know, a very fixed chronology in our global culture. He said that it is an evolving living thing. And I like to think of history as going to an art museum and you look at a painting and the way that I interpret it is dependent upon my life experiences, the you know environment in which I was raised, the mm-hmm. values I have and what I've been taught. And you may come along and look at the same painting and have a totally different interpretation. And I think that around that time, people were starting to learn that it was okay to think of history that way. It didn't have to be a very fixed subject. It could yeah. be, you know, reinterpreted and re not reimagined, but reevaluated. Yeah, and it, I think Becker himself actually um compared it to looking over your own history. Like if you think about your own past and there are certain things that uh you do skew and you do choose to forget. Like you obviously can't remember everything and the and the idea of of relating history is necessarily picking out facts and ignoring most of the other facts. And so you necessarily, like, uh, objectivity is really difficult. And so just the, the fact, just the way that you pick out facts can, can alter how someone understands it. And we know that historians as early on as Plutarch and Tacitus were doing this, they were revising history, but it didn't really become a major subject of discussion until World War II when historians had to go back and think about how do we write about the war? How Mm -hmm. do we write about the Nazi soldiers? And that's when revisionist history really became a hot topic. And in the decades that continued to uh, to follow, all of these volatile movements began, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. And even mm-hmm. globalization itself was a volatile topic, as well as technology, events like the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, the Cold War, and the Feminist Movement. All of these things happening that made people realize that different names and different motivations needed to be included in history textbooks. That's right. So textbooks started incorporating Looking at marginalized people of society, like you mentioned the feminist movement, so they, they looked at famous women and, and their, their work in the feminist movement. And, you know, the civil rights movement in America, at least, uh, after that, people started paying much more attention to landmark, um, African Americans or marginalized races in general. 
Exactly. So before we go any further, I think it would be a good idea, maybe just to even warm you guys up or get you um, familiar with revisionist history, to tell you a little anecdote. And we have a great article on our website about revisionist history. And the author of this one begins by telling the much beloved story of George Washington and the cherry tree. Mm -hmm. And it is. It's a fun, simple little anecdote um, in which we're told as school children, or we used to be rather, that George Washington went and cut down a cherry tree on his parents' property one day. And when his father asked him whether or not he had cut down the tree, he said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down the cherry tree. Mm -hmm. And it was meant to reaffirm in the early Americans' minds that George Washington was a man of, of valor and truth, and he could be trusted, and he was a good leader. And it wasn't true. And and we know even today, archaeologists went out and they surveyed the land where he would have grown up. And there were no cherry trees on the property. Mm-hmm. But it was a story that made him a larger-than-life figure in our minds. And so one of the things that revisionist history does is correct specific facts. And with a case like this, it doesn't really detract from George Washington's character that that story isn't true. You know, we still have many of the same assumptions that we did about him before. Yeah, that's right. Um, correcting facts is something that, like, obviously every historian should be, you know, open to. If, they, if there is new evidence that is revealed, by all means, go back and, and fix it. And if that means altering how we think of, of someone in our history, we should do that. But a lot of people think of revisionist history in a more radical way. Charles Beard is a famous historian that challenged how we uh, thought about the founding fathers in general. He looked particularly at the revolution, the American Revolution, and he said these people um, stood to gain money, like to because they had debt that they bought very cheaply, and that they by after the revolution they would make out. And so Charles Beard was like, oh, they weren't really interested in what they said they were interested in, like the the liberties and all the all the meanings behind uh, the the uh, Constitution, but rather they were just after money. And that brings to mind a very important perspective that revisionist history takes as well. And if the fact-checking perspective is the most cut and dry, we'll call that number one. The number two perspective, we would say, like Jane is referring to now, uh, applying specific lenses to history. And there are four that are primarily applied, and those are economic, like with Charles Beard theory, Mm -hmm. political, racial, and sexual. And so these social or um, theoretical perspectives can completely alter the way we, we view a group of people. But it's, again, like you were looking at a painting in an art museum or, okay. or even yeah. reading a book, you can read these different theories and you can appreciate the lens that's being applied to it, but you don't have to agree with it. It just it gives it a new shade of meaning. That's true. And one thing to consider when these new um, ideas come out, these radical new ideas about, you know, did uh, the Chinese discover America before Columbus and all like this, is that these uh, books and everything, they, they do sell. And uh, so there is that motivation just to take these new theories with a grain of salt that academics have this motivation, they have that temptation to come up with these new radical ideas for their own purposes. And that's when things can get really dangerous. And we'll call that perspective number three. And that is taking um, a negative perspective and, and looking at revisionism as an opportunity to put mm-hmm. your agenda onto history and to get people to believe a certain factor that's not exactly true. And in some instances, if it's just dead wrong and that's apparent to everyone, it's not called revisionism. 
revisionism, excuse me, it's called negationism. And That's a- right, yeah, and one example of this I think you were going to lead to was the Holocaust denial. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, revisionists claim, oh, you know, we, we don't want to be associated with something like Holocaust denial because, you know, the facts are there and, and it did happen. And these radicals who are saying that it didn't shouldn't be associated with us. So let's take a look at some other examples of revised histories and revised historical narratives that can, in fact, alter our perspectives mm-hmm. of the past. And um, it's it's the same old song for me. I'm going to bring up my favorite man, Thomas Jefferson. I knew it. <laughs> Jane could feel it coming. Yeah. I had that sparkle in my eye. <laughs> um, the Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings affair didn't come to light until, you know, well after DNA tests conclusively proved that he had fathered children with her and that mm-hmm. there were, you know, uh, several generations of Jefferson children who had uh, black blood in them. And yeah. I think that really complicates the Jefferson image because we know that he had slaves on Monticello. Mm-hmm. And we know from some of his, his slaves' narratives that were written down that he was, you know, I guess in certain terms, a good master, but he was still a master of slaves. And he did not believe in the dissolution of the institution of slavery. He stood up very strongly for the fact that he thought it was an institution that would phase itself out. Okay. And I believe he had a selfish motivation in that. I think that Monticello really? was run completely yeah. off of all the hard work of slaves, and he knew he had a good thing going. And despite the fact that he was kind to them or he was a good master, it, it would have fallen apart. Mm-hmm. And how how complex and difficult to grapple with the fact that he supported slavery, and yet he fathered children who wouldn't be accepted as, as equal members of society. So that's a really strong point of view about a founding father whom... I, I dearly love for his ideas and what he contributed to our nation, but revisionist history doesn't just look at people specifically. It can also look at periods of time. That's right. And it's interesting if you look at the different periods in history, uh, they were obviously named, and these names were invented by certain people who had certain perspectives on history. So you look at like a name like the Dark Ages or the Enlightenment or the Renaissance, and whether it was through intention or just the connotation of the name of the word, it does sort of shape how we think of them. And so it's always good, like, at How Stuff Works, we have this great motto of keep asking. And it's always good to always be questioning how we think about history in general. And one personal uh, story of mine that I, you know, had, I am young enough to have um, gotten uh, kind of revisionist history when I was taught, uh, was that when I was learning about the American Revolution, my textbook would talk, would basically give a lot of defenses for the British. You know, I was taught, obviously, in America, but um, my textbook was like, hey, but the British... British, you know, had their had their reasons, and and this is why they did those taxes, and they were just defending America, and blah blah blah. And so it really, um, you can see it seeping into American school children today. It's so interesting to think about, and uh, I think that there's one particular county in Florida that has outright banned any sort of interpretive or revisionist textbooks. And again, we see that revisionist history can be a really nasty term. Even uh, George W. Bush used it to describe the media covering the war in Iraq. Back in 2003, he called them revisionist historians. And again, depending on whether you look at revisionist history as an opportunity to bring a greater truth and a a greater shade of understanding or some sort of um, ulterior motive to get people to correspond to your agenda, it can go either way. Mm -hmm. One of the most important important reasons to study revisionist history and even history is that we've been told time and time again that history repeats itself. And a really hot topic right now with Obama getting ready to come into the White House Mm -hmm. is the idea of a new, new deal. 
But two UCLA economists are claiming through their research that the original New Deal wasn't so hot after all and that it actually might have put the United States back seven years in terms of economic recovery. And what they're saying is that the policies that were part of the National Industrial Recovery Act actually made the Great Depression continue on until about 1943 when the economy could have naturally corrected itself by 36. So what FDR did essentially was revoke any sort of punishment for big corporations that were trusts, Hmm. and he encouraged employees to be paid 25% more than what their salaries and their jobs were really worth. And so we're looking now, and these economists are saying we really need think twice about any sort of new stimulus plan to help boost the economy. Yeah, that's true. And how it applies today, you're very right. And I have heard that theory before, because like, if you look at the, if you look at FDR, like a lot of people say the depression didn't end until the war and the war is really what ended the depression Mm -hmm. um, and not FDR's policies. So it is very relevant to today to deciding what we're going to do. Exactly. And I think a lot of us think of FDR as a bigger than life president. You know, he certainly has one of the most, um, memorable monuments in Washington. Certainly, he's a very beloved figure. He had an incredibly long term. He had, you know, people who followed and listened to the fireside chats, and they were also very big fans of Eleanor. And so these economists who are putting forth this new theory are are really shaking up our Mm -hmm. perceptions of a president who people, you know, heretofore thought led our nation through a really hard time. And now they're questioning that. They're questioning that. And I think Some theorists are even going so far as to question what FDR's ulterior motives may have been. Perhaps he Hmm. genuinely thought he was doing the right thing for the nation and for the economy, or perhaps it was a power measure. Maybe he wanted to hold his office and he knew that he could if he continued to keep the people, you know, under his thumb. He was elected more than twice. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So, revisionist history, who knows what will be revealed next. Yeah. But there are so many opportunities for you to go in and and look at historical narratives and revise them and and bring your own point of view to them. And we would encourage you guys to do that with many of the history articles on our site. So be sure to check them out at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. (laughs) 